You know when someone has a standout story and you're like, wow, I wish I could do that too. Well, I mean, just because one person manages to make it out of a really tough neighborhood does not mean that if everybody applies the same level of grit, they should be able to make it out too. We need to use their story as what it is, an exception. That's what exceptionalism is. And learn from what helped them to make it out and change the environment and reality of all the other kids who are having to fight to just exist, let alone thrive, every day. Also, have you heard the phrase, do your 111th? Maybe not, especially if you're not a football player, fan, or otherwise. And I know in this COVID-19 world, you might be none of the above. But this football term to us makes a ton of sense. And to break it down, in football, there are 11 players on the field. So each person during each play is responsible for just their 111th of that play. That means continue to do what you can in your sphere of the world. It does matter, and it does make a difference. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that makes it easy for you to enter uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and the realities of the world. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha, and today we bring you a conversation with an exceptional young man, Kylan Moore, who went from growing up in Compton, California, to being a Rhodes Scholar on his way to earning a PhD from Stanford so he can be a college professor and continue to focus on the education of himself and others. Kylan, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'm extremely excited to be here today. My name is Kylan Lewis Moore. I originally hail from Compton, California. I was born in Hollywood. And pretty much I wrote a book at 24, 25 years of age. And I've been traveling the world telling my story. The book is entitled A Dream Too Big, The Story of an Improbable Journey from Compton to Oxford. Once again, coming from Compton all the way to the University of Oxford, there's a lot of things I learned in between, a lot of experiences, and I'm just excited to share that with the world to see what changes we can bring about. I love that. And in the continuation of that trajectory, it sounds like you're going to be doing some PhD work at Stanford coming up. So <laughs> I'm excited to see what comes next for you. But, you know, before we go into the future, I mean, what I love about your story, I mean, there's so many things. Right. But what I really want to understand is both your personal experience, because you've lived and experienced life and education in many, many different settings already, even as a young man. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it will help shed light on what's happening right now. Like Misasha and I, before we met with you, we're just talking about how our brains are exploding with the latest COVID induced, like further widening of the gap of educational inequality. And I feel like your story is really going to help us shed light on like what was already happening in this country and what do we need to look out for? So with that said, like, I know you said your journey started in Compton, but from what I've researched, it sounded like you started in a more white middle class community. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. My parents, whom were married for nine years, they had us living in Moreno Valley in Fontana, California. So it's a predominantly white, a middle class to upper middle class suburb you won't hear any ambulance, you won't hear any police sirens or, you know, any helicopters, anything like that. It's a very nice suburb to live in, great educational systems. And I kind of remember, I guess, one word that would characterize my experiences being in that 
predominantly white, you know, upper middle class suburb is insulated. And I was insulated from the things that are happening in the world to people that have less resources, you know, that are going through all types of things. You would never even know those things are going on when you come from an environment like that. I remember at my elementary school, my kindergarten teacher, her name was Robin Gallagher. And I just remember how warm and how sweet she was. And just like, how there was like an entire ecosystem surrounding the students, helping them achieve and helping them succeed, even for students that may have been lagging behind or not doing as well. And then, you know, after my parents divorced after a marriage of nine years, I was able to juxtapose my experience in that environment towards something that was in the inner city. We moved in with my grandmother on the borderline of Compton and Carson, and it was a stark contrast from day one. One of the stories that I tell that I experienced the very first day of elementary school, we were standing, when I moved to Compton, we were standing on the playground and we were six years old because it's first grade. And it was just me and the two other boys. And, you know, I'm new at the school, so I'm not speaking too much. And the two boys started up a conversation. I think before we were thinking about what we wanted to play, but then one just popped off the conversation. And he said, without any precursor, he said, one day when I go to prison, I want to be a gang member automatically, or I'm going to be a crip automatically. And then the next boy said, one day when I go to prison, I'm going to pretend to be religious. Specifically, said, I'm going to pretend to be Muslim because I heard they won't mess with you if you're religious. And then when it came my turn to answer that question, mind you, I just came from living in a predominantly white suburban middle class area that never crossed my mind. And it was my turn to answer that question and uh, to say what I would do one day when I went to prison. I didn't know what to say. Up to that point in my life, I had never even thought about things like that. And the unfortunate part of this story is that was already the reality for those young boys at such an early age through no fault of their own. Literally just because of the zip code that they live in and the school that they attend and where their parents live. And it's little experiences like that that show me had I only grown up in that middle class area, I can only imagine how I would think the things that would shock me. You know, if you look at the recent protests and things we've seen, you know, it's almost as if people are thinking, whoa, there's racism in the United States. What's going on here? Like, wait, what happened? You know, it's almost like confusing. And I can empathize with that to a certain degree because I know how it is to be in a very insulated community where you don't have to think about certain things on a day to day basis. But then I can also empathize with people that have to think about it every single day. There's no escaping it. That's amazing because we always talk about how we sort of, as half Japanese, half white people, we bridge just like we grew up bridging these gaps, you know, between our parents' cultures. And for you to also have that experience of just like you understand that there are different ways that people live from such a young age, I think has to shape your personal worldview. And I do wonder, you know, you said what would happen if you had just lived in the white area, but what would have happened had you just grown up in Compton too and where you might be now? But we're throwing around. Compton, as if people already know. What can you describe for those listeners who've either only heard it, you know, like, what is it really like living in Compton? Why do people talk about it with this degree of like, wow, you came from there? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I was growing up, I didn't really realize the gravity of the area code of where I was living or the things I did in that area. You know, it was just home. I think the reason why there's such a visceral reaction to hearing the word Compton, you know, I think rap music plays a lot into it. You know, everything we know about N.W.A. and famous rappers, Dr. Dre, people that come from that area. But also it was a very high crime area for much of the 90s, early 2000s. A lot of gang membership, especially, you know, blood gangs specifically and Pyru gangs. So these are the things that made the area particularly infamous. But living there day to day experience, I would say 
let's say 97% of people are just minding their business. If I think about my neighbors, my neighbors to the left side, he was a retired pro baseball player that had to live in that neighborhood because when he was playing for MLB team, they made all the black players live in a different area than the white players. So that's my neighbor on the left, my neighbor on the right, middle class, working black man across the street, nuclear family. Most people just went to job. I mean, pardon me, went to their work and came home in this community. But then you have that small, that 3% of uh, predominantly young men that are the most vulnerable to become gang members and to fall victim to gang violence or to perpetuate gang violence. And those are the things that make it very complicated to live in that area. You know, when you're hearing gunshots on a nightly basis, when you're hearing police sirens, when you're walking home from elementary school and you're picking up bullet shells and bullet fragments. You know, it's all from that small 3%. But even with that, it still has a tremendous impact on your life. Because as opposed to thinking about, you know, how you can just have fun or the next little thing you might get into as a young you know, boy, you're thinking about keeping your body out of uh, mortal danger just walking home from school on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of your thinking is monopolized by that, on a, you know, just daily, just walking around. I thought about my safety so much. That's why it was always fascinating when I would go to, you know, different places. Let's say I'm in a college class and they would ask a question. Let's say I'm in a, in a women's studies class. And I love women's studies. It's very fascinating. And I'm in a women's studies class and they say, you know, as a man, you know, you don't have to think about, you know, walking down the street. If you're walking out late at night, do you have to think about your safety? And in my head, I was like, man, they never been to Compton. They must not know many people from there. That's the main thing you think about all day long. But it just gives you this hyper-awareness of the fragile line between life and death because you see it all around you. If I had, I could probably name for about 10 minutes straight all the friends and family members or especially friends that you lose growing up, that you play youth football with, that you went to high school with, that were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I just tried to make sure that that wasn't my story. I know. I need a breath. I grew up in Los Angeles and, you know, the Compton that I had heard of was that same Compton, the Compton from the rap songs. And, you know, I was in L.A. when Rodney King happened. And I really appreciate what you shared about the 97 percent, because I think that's what people don't see or don't think about when they think about Compton. But also, you know, thinking about what you said about fearing for your safety and just trying to get through the day unharmed physically. You know, I'm sure as a child, when you're trying to do that, and then you're also trying to learn, you know, there are unique educational challenges then that you're facing as well, because you're navigating your world, you're navigating your schooling, you're navigating your community. Can you talk a little bit about those challenges that you face on the educational side as well? Yes, sure. Absolutely. That's one thing that I started to realize very early on, just like how the educational system at an early age will kind of put you into a trajectory towards, you know, prison effectively or towards, you know, working class lives or towards college. And we had like a three tier system. And I believe in many L.A. USD schools, they still have this in the public schools, at least where you have the, like this track system where the top kids, you know, based off of their first and second grade and third grade test scores, they get into these magnet programs. And sometimes, you know, parents will come there and, you know, fight with the administrators to get them in there. Then you have the middle tier kids and then the lower tier kids. And I started off in the lowest tier, the kids that are essentially, you know, the system is already writing off at a very, very early age. You're getting the least qualified teachers, least opportunities. I remember my brother, who was also in the lower classes, he like brought back a dictionary that was 
from the 1960s. And I remember looking at the dictionary. Mind you, you know, I'm 26. My brother is 24. So this is not very long ago. And the dictionary was so antiquated that it didn't have the word computer in it because the dictionary came out before computers came out. <laughs> and I just remember sitting there like, I mean, I don't know how you could compete on an SAT. You know, how could someone, you know, tell me that that kid has a chance on the SAT versus, you know, Lori Laughlin's, you know, kid or something like that. You have no chance at all. You know, the cards are stacked against you at a very, very early age. So there are so many educational challenges where it almost like appears like something impossible when you think about one day going to college. Like people don't think about college as something that's like a natural progression because of the disparity in educational resources. You talk about something, you talk about it as if it's like winning the lottery are doing something amazing. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. It becomes, you know, ethos around that neighborhood that, you know, if somebody's gone for a particular time and they're over the age 18, you know, let's say in a predominantly white neighborhood like where I used to live, oh, let's say Jonathan, he just got back. That means he just got back from college. In this environment, they say, oh, such and such, you know, Jonathan just got back. That means he just got back from prison because the overwhelming understanding is that college is so out of the ordinary, so unattainable that even when I came back from home, like when I was 18 and 19, I had put on a little weight. Some people really thought that I went upstate, like, you know, to do a, a prison term. They could not believe like I was in school, you know, studying and, you know, playing football at the time. And that's how I gained weight. They thought I was upstate. So and just a tremendous amount of educational barriers. And as we can see, all the data, uh, all the data shows us that the more you constrict or limit people's educational opportunities, you limit their opportunities for upward mobility in a general sense. And that's why you see perpetual cycles of poverty, gang violence, things like this that really could be curtailed with good policy and with people, you know, such as yourselves spreading this information about how important it is to provide equitable educational opportunities to the kids. When you were in that lowest track that you were talking about, like, you know, are those three tracks like so obvious that every kid knows what track they belong in? They are. Thank you for saying that, because I was talking with my brother about this today and kids know like they call it the lower track. They call that the track for the dummies or, you know, the, the dumb, dumb mm -hmm. track, the stupid track for the stupid kids. Think about that. You start to develop this self-esteem or this lack of academic self-esteem about yourself that you're in that track. And then you have the track uh, for the magnet kids. Oddly enough, it was like kind of like a level of classism in the elementary schools because the kids that are in the lower track, typically they may come from like a more impoverished background. Perhaps, you know, it's more predominant that they'll have single parent homes. And then the kids that are in the magnet track, perhaps you'll have more two parent homes, you know, middle class families or something like that. But it was almost like an elitism or a tension that existed. And now I used to be bittered by it even when I became a part of it. But now I think about it and it's more so it's more about the fact that there were such scarce resources that people were really fighting over the small little resources that there are at this school on the borderline of Compton and Carson. So from what you just said, do you think that like if there was more opportunity, if there were more magnet schools, more qualified teachers, dictionaries that were up to date, like it sounds like there would have been more opportunities for more children to be in the higher ranks. It wasn't, it was because there was sort of limitations placed on how many kids could fit in that upper track, like, you know, magnet school track. Is that right? Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. If you think about it and others, when I went off to college and I started to see the world a little bit, the opportunities that kids were afforded in the magnet schools and the magnet programs, that was a given, like at these schools. Like I went to, I graduated from a high school where we didn't even have AP classes. So when I went to college 
and I found out that kids already had like a year's worth of credit, it was so discouraging. I was like, man, I worked my tail off in high school. Even if I wanted to get this AV class and graduate early, and do, I couldn't do it if I wanted to because it's not even offered at my school. My cousin went to a high school and he took AP sign language, I believe, or I don't know if it was sign language. It was like some type of language course and another course. And when it came down to take the AP test at the time, his mom and his dad, he came from two parent household. His parents didn't have enough money for him to pay to take the test. So we couldn't even take the AP test. These are the things that you don't think about. So to your point, I do agree with the fact that, and the data supports that, the more you give equitable opportunities, the more you would see you know, kids rise to the top. But the problematic thing that we have right now in the United States, politically speaking at least, the same people that are in charge, I mean this in terms of politicians, the same people that are in charge of the local budgeting for a school district also are in charge of who gets to get a contract to open up a new prison in that general area. And for me, that's a clear conflict of interest, but it's something that exists right now. So, you know, there's this tension, there's this battle, and it's a lot of data to show, you know, if you invest in early childhood education, a child is very unlikely to ever, you know, be involved with criminality to go to prison. But yet we don't see a will to invest in these things. Instead, you know, we're giving incarceration instead of education. And that's kind of where I come in to say, like, hey, let's wake up. You know, this is the United States and working hard. We believe in the principles. Every child has a right to have a great life. So let's actually put our money, let's put our will, let's put our mindset where our mouth is. You know, one of the things you said on Good Morning America, which I loved, also congrats on being on Good Morning America. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things you said that was not visible, you know, we talked about what's not happening in the school system, but for a lot of a middle and upper class neighborhoods or even more white neighborhoods, you have outside of school opportunities. And one of the things you mentioned there was what was not present, like the Kumons and that. Can you talk a little bit about what was in that community or not there compared to what you saw later on? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Once again, these are things that I had to learn along the way. Like when I left my community, I started to see the things that were a given in other communities. One example will be a Kumon Mathematics Center. I've never seen like a Kumon Mathematics Center in like a predominantly black or inner city area or impoverished area. And I'm very familiar with LA. I went to high school in Watts, went to church over kind of closer to Inglewood, grew up all at every park. My main park was in Compton. So I've seen all these areas, no Kumon Mathematics Center. I've never, ever, ever seen a Montessori school or something like that. And now I realize, like, if you go to different circles, start reading different literature, these are the things that, you know, that mothers and fathers, but predominantly mothers in these areas, really care about. They want to make sure they have these things for their kids um, and they're aware of it. They're educated on the benefits of it. But then I see my community and there's a scarcity or a complete lack of them. I say this to say a lot of times, if you want to curtail certain issues, you know, when you're getting to the point where you have to meet you know, a large group of young men with a certain amount of force or something like that, that means you are late to the problem. You show up early with the Kumon Mathematics Center, with the Montessori School, with the Boys and Girls Club. I couldn't find you, my local Boys and Girls Club. There was a YMCA, not to like a couple miles from my house, but it was like mad far to get there. Like you would not be able to get there on a bicycle. So it would be a significant push. And then on top of that, it's by freeway and it's just not a convenient place. But there weren't very many places where people are saying, let's invest in the youth in this community. And I think personally, I think it's a very important thing. And as I stated before, the data shows when you make these investments, you always get a positive return on them. 
I love that. I think that's, you know, we're, I feel like we're in the mindset right now where we're looking at all the things that exist and all the options that are there. And it's really important to remember when the options aren't there, you know, what does that look like and what does that affect? And so I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned, you know, the three classes and you're in that lower, you started off in that lowest class. So how did you learn in an environment without the Kumans, without the Montessori's, without the APs? Like, how were you able to keep up hope and what helped you along the way? Yeah, that's a great question. I would love to give myself like credit, like, oh, man, I just worked so hard. And everybody else, if you want to make it out of Compton, just work as hard as me. But in honesty, like I can't of good conscience say that I definitely caught some great breaks. There's this scholar named uh, Victor Rios. I believe he's at UC Santa Barbara. And he wrote a book called Punished and another book called Human Targets. And what he talks about is that a lot of times with these kids, like kids that have problems that eventually become incarcerated while being in these areas, they have something called a youth control complex around them, probation officers, the schools that are criminalizing them, parents telling them, you know, perhaps sometimes you won't be anything. What he says, you need to surround youth with something called a youth support complex. And when he said that, I was like, wow, okay, that's what I had. So I had a great youth support complex. When I think about parenting, my mom always instilled in us that, you know, we may live in the hood, but the hood will not live in us. The things that are beating you down, tearing you down every single day, that we can indeed rise above these things, despite, you know, what everyone is saying outside. And on top of that, I had opportunities to grow intellectually. When I think about opportunities that were racially affirming at my elementary school, learning about yourself in a textbook, learning about culture, learning about history, in addition to rigorous subjects such as mathematics and anything else. I think about teachers I had along the way that were part of my youth support complex. I think about Mrs. Walters. Mrs. Walters was like a 60 to 70 year old white woman, deep green eyes. I didn't bring a backpack to school, you know, a lot of times. And I had terrible grades in sixth grade because it would hold me back if I had to run, if I had to defend myself or if I had to hop a fence or something like that. And I had part of my youth support complex, Mrs. Walters, bring me aside, you know, after class one day. And she said, you know what? I see great things in you. You have great potential as a student, but you will not be able to succeed if you don't bring your backpack. And I think it was something about like someone that's not part of my family, someone that's like other like taking the time to care about me. It was such like a strange thing for me that it had an impression on me. I had a 4.0 from that point forward in elementary school. So I had many different opportunities like that when I think about high school, having a great black male mentorship in teachers and counselors, coaches. And then one significant aspect, definitely at least for myself, was sports. And I guess that just tied into just having a positive activity to engage with you know, after school, something to look forward to, something to work towards, something when you're walking down the street and someone rolls up on you and asks you, you know, where you're from, you know, asking in its own as in which gang are you associated with? I can say, you know, oh, I just play football. You know, I want to make it out. They say, OK, respect. Or at the same time, when I'm walking down the street and I have a backpack and I have, you know, my football on my left hand and law enforcement comes to stop me and they ask me where was I, I can say I was at practice. You know, so it served two functions of enabling me to be safe and to be motivated, you know, in this neighborhood and to have an idea in my head that, you know, there's a way that I can um, better my life. You know, you feel like you're in control. So I think I had a youth support complex around me that really like just wrapped their arms around me. And on top of that, I mean, I don't want to give myself credit 
but I was always like a pretty motivated student. Like generally, like I think back to like second grade, like they gave us like spelling bee words and I took them home. And, and mind you, I'm sharing a bed with my mom, my brother, and my sister in a, just one room. And I would like study by like flashlight, candlelight, all those things, like super hard, my spelling bee words. And this is when I was seven years old. And um, I was just always like a pretty curious kid. And I ended up taking like second place in the spelling bee. And it just inspired me that, you know, if I can like work hard, something good can happen. Right. And all the you know, there's a lot of research that shows when you give children early opportunities to have like academic success or success at anything, it builds their self-esteem. So I had, you know, self-esteem. I had opportunities to build my self-esteem at an early age. And I think it's a beautiful thing when you can extend that to so many different kids. I love all of that. I mean, I want to. You touched on so many things that just went boom, boom, boom. Like the fact that the police would stop you for walking down the street, right? Like the whole just walking around existing in this country for being black. You, the fact that I did wonder, you know, what was the perception of a successful or non-gang member person, someone who removed themselves? Did you get in trouble? But you answered that question of like, they would respect that you had your thing, you know, but what pressure to live under, under a day to day to day basis, just to get from... A to B. I think about white families being like, would you send your kid right now 11 miles on a city bus to get to school? Wow. (laughs) That's so deep. Now I think about that. That is crazy. That's faith. That's hope and necessity. You know, because I wouldn't, you know, I'm a father. I would not send my daughter at 11 years old on a city bus just to get you know, a good education, not even like a school bus. I took multiple city buses and you getting on there with like high school students and things like that. But to your point, you know, walking around, it wasn't as if like a young man like myself was abnormal. Cause like I said, compare the 97 to the 3%, but even still you can be vulnerable, you know, to getting picked on. You could be vulnerable to someone, you know, trying to you know, flex their masculinity on you or, you know, flash a pistol on you or something like that, pull out a gun. So those are things that were like normal. But I don't know. I was just so hungry. Like if I could think back to how I used to think when I was that young, I was so hungry to become something like it's hard to describe. It's like I was desperate to make something of myself. And I say this to say I wasn't desperate to make something of myself. Therefore, every kid that's in a circumstance like that, if you had that same desperation, you will achieve success. Now, I say this to say, I kind of had this sense inside of me that, man, if I don't make it out, no one will ever know my story. I'll never be able to create an easier pathway for the other young men and women. I'll never be able to change these things if I don't, you know, surpass these limitations. It was kind of like that. I had like this pressure within me and outside of me. When you walk out, imagine being, you know, 15 years old and you walk you know, by your high school, you see drug needles, syringes on the ground. You see already young kids giving up hope. You see underage, you know, prostitution or things like that. It just puts something into you where it's like, you don't know what can change or how to change it, but you know you want to do what you can to contribute towards that change. So it, it just inspired me. I like to use it as like a type of motivation. I kept it at the forefront of my mind all the time. So no matter how many times I was getting stopped or you know, rather it was the law enforcement or gangs. I just went to keep going. I had one experience when I was nine years old. And this is when it, it taught me how you can be criminalized just from being in a particular area. I was walking from my elementary school. So nine years old, I was fourth grade. You know, I had my backpack on. I had a, a Yu-Gi-Oh sweatshirt. Yu-Gi-Oh is like a card game that all the uh, the dorks play. We used to play that. I was never like a proper dork, but, you know, I dabbled. <laughs> 
So I was walking my Yu-Gi-Oh sweatshirt on in my backpack, and a law enforcement officer came around the corner, and he was, like, driving down, like, this long alley by my house. So I saw him, and just like usual, I tossed my backpack over, hopped the fence, take a shortcut to get home, you know, so I can go study. And I think he saw me, like, standing by the fence. He turned around, put on his lights, came and stopped me, and um, he got out of the car, and it was like a whole show. I felt so embarrassed and confused because up to that point at nine years old, just like, you know, any white kid from the suburbs I used to live in, you know, you think the police are on your side. They're out here to catch the bad guys. You know, that's all you know about the law enforcement. You know, they're out here to catch the bad guys and feeling like, whoa, am I a bad guy? And kind of negotiating that. I got pushed against the wall, had a scrape on my face. And it was just such a weird thing. It kind of robs a little part of your childhood because you want to think a certain way, you know. You want to default. I was reading this book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. <laughs> yes, I have it right here. I totally told me Sasha. She had to read it. Sarah gave wow. it to me too. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad you read it. Yeah. Well, one thing, so you'll know this. He talks about how people naturally default to truth. You know, they always want to default to truth. Like people are honest and truthful beings. And that was one of the first times where I was like, hold up. I don't know if I can always default to truth in this case, because I literally got caught up in this and I wasn't doing anything. I was the least threatening thing. Imagine a nine-year-old, just any other nine-year-old. And that's an experience that wouldn't happen to a nine-year-old anywhere else. So no matter how much I want to default to truth and think that generally speaking, all people are good people, generally speaking, even all law enforcement officers are good people. I have personal experience that doesn't allow me to be blind to that anymore, that there can be abuse that happens from people in any role. So when I see these things, I always have that in the back of my mind, that experience that, you know what, let me look deeper into this. Let me actually inspect this. And it comes from that experience. It's funny you mentioned that. I don't have a formative childhood experience like that that I can point to. But when I read that book, a part of me was like, I relate more to that dude who was like trusted his instinct and was super skeptical and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And it turned out he was right to be skeptical and did not default to truth. I felt like I related a little bit more to that character versus someone who tends to default to truth as a matter of course, too. So I guess some people are wired a little bit differently, but it's interesting you can pinpoint that experience in contrast to what the general public tends to do by defaulting to truth. <sighs> That's cool. I like that you read that book. It's like my favorite right now. I, I literally just read it like yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. That's why it's fresh in my mind. But yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's why it's so hard to change public opinion or change perception about certain things in the United States, because people don't have any experience that differs or that disrupts that narrative, you know, and not everyone is like yourself, where they're thinking, hold up, let me be really skeptical about this. You know, just in a general sense, a lot of times it's experientially based and lacking that experience you know, they're not going to be as critical. They'll just think, ah, oh, what are these people complaining about? What are these women talking about? You know, their work is just fine. They don't need more equality. What are these ethnic group, this religious group talking about? No one's treating them bad, but they're saying they're being treated bad unfairly. What is, you know, this group talking about? And you'll start to think like that if you don't have those experiences that disrupt that narrative. And this is such an experience. Listen to this podcast. You can have an experience from listening to this and say, hold up, let me think deeper about this. So it doesn't have to happen to you. You can learn it. But oftentimes in us living in our own ideological silos, that doesn't happen as often as I would like it to. I also really appreciated that you pointed out that like just because you did this doesn't mean that everybody who has this gumption can or should necessarily make it out. And I think it's really important to point out exceptionalism is that because it is exceptional. It is not the norm. It is not 
what people should blow off the circumstances and be like, well, Kylan made it. Everyone else should be just fine. Like we need to look at the systems and appreciate maybe what helped get you through, but then change the systems based on what helped, you know, versus assume that you can do it just because. You know. Absolutely. Precisely. That's why the book is entitled A Dream Too Big, The Story of an Improbable Journey. And it's, you know, I put that word in the title because I want to show that this journey was incredibly improbable. And let's discuss why and how can we make it less improbable for those that will come after me. So you grew up in this system, you went to college, and then you show up at Oxford. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, <laughs> let's not also forget that you were a Fulbright scholar and a Rhodes scholar, like, right? Is this correct? I mean, yes, that's correct. <laughs> this is incredible because, I mean, those are huge honors. And so, you know, what was it like showing up in a system that is so traditional and also outside the American system? Mm, absolutely. I mean, for one, it was incredibly fun just hearing people talk with that funny British accent all day. You know, I loved it. You know, just I'm just asking them to say different words. But no, in the, generally, I think I had a great time just being able to learn in a different context to kind of get a different view on things that I took for granted, historically speaking, like it didn't matter what it was, you know, with they're very critical, you know, the education system or what I learned there, very critical about whatever the topic is. And it allowed me to think deeper, you know, ultimately made me smarter. I think it definitely contributed to the scholar that I hope to be, you know, one day as a college professor. But I had an incredible time, to be honest with you. Even the process of applying to these prestigious scholarships, it was so, I don't know, I was just very inspired throughout the entire process because I didn't come into it with any baggage behind it. Like, mommy or daddy is telling me I need to win these awards or my dad won it, so I need to look up to live up to these standards. I had no expectations. We were talking with one of my high school, part of me, one of my neighborhood friends, my next door neighbor yesterday, and I told him that I'm a PhD student at Stanford, a training to become a professor, and I wrote a book. This dude was shocked. He couldn't even believe it. And um, I wasn't offended. Some people would take offense to that, like, oh, what, you don't think I'm smart enough? No, I understand. Like, that wasn't even the expectation. That's nowhere near what the expectations were for my life trajectory. So the reason why I say that is when I went in for that interview for the Rose Scholarship, for the Fulbright Summer Institute Scholarship, my pressure was just different. It's like no matter what happens, no matter the outcome of this admissions essay or this scholarship interview, I want to go do this for my community. I'm committed to this. Whether you guys give me the enumerated titles or not, I'm going to go ahead and do this. So it just put like this battery in my back, to use a colloquialism, it put this battery in my back just of inspiration and swagger and, uh, you know, hopefully confidence and hopefully no foolhardiness. But it, it put me in a position where I really wanted to change my community and use these tools, reallocate these resources to find a way to use it to contribute to, you know, the overall mission of uplifting my community. So it was dope. I'm glad that I went to Oxford. I learned a ton, met some incredible people. I'm sure that it will be lifelong friends for me. And um, I ate some really good food. People say English food is bad. I beg to differ. It wasn't, it's really not that bad. Like, I like fish and chips. I have fish and chips once a week. So, <laughs> When we make home fries, my kid only eats it with malt vinegar and salt. I'm like, are you British? Like, what's happening? I don't even understand. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's so cool. You know, you just mentioned that part of your commitment and the, no matter what has happened, your vision is to help your communities and change systems. There are like, both based on your experiences and as you say, the research and 
statistics showing that like black and brown kids, especially who live in lower income areas, have a lot of challenges. I mean, we just talked about a whole slew based on even your life story. So what are your, like, what do you think can be done to solve some of these really deep-seated challenges in our society? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, very complicated (laughs) question, but I like engaging with questions like this because they push you intellectually. I will say it has to be like a, you have to take a holistic picture at everything, right? So I'm going to give you a non-answer first, and then I'll give you a real answer, just like a good politician (laughs) does. They always give you the non-answer. The non-answer is this, but it's an important non-answer. In order to fully understand what to do, you have to really take a deep dive. Like I'll give you an example. If I told you, hey, can you go to the parking lot and fix my car? Here's $100. So I threw $100 at you and I said, go fix my car. Well, you don't know what car I drive. You don't know what color the car is, what year the car is, because there could be multiple. You don't know what's wrong with the car. You don't know what tools you need for the car. You don't know if it can be fixed. But I gave you $100. Go fix my car. And when it comes to a lot of these issues, there's somewhere around that. That's a rough approximation of what happens. You know, here's the money. We're going to throw it at this randomly. And um, hopefully there's a good outcome. But for me, I want to really look at like the evidence based things that show, you know, for example, I was reading a study. It was by Patrick Sharkey. He's a professor at Princeton University that showed, I think it was every additional nine or 10 community organizations. Like imagine like just any community organization, Boys and Girls Club, for example, every additional nine, 10 community organizations, you had a 6% reduction in the murder rate. So right then you say, hold up, let's add 10 more community organizations. If it's having, if the numbers are that efficacious. So it's really looking at things like that. So that would be an example As I stated earlier, investing in early childhood literacy, if you're actually trying to combat gang violence and and murder rates, because a lot of times they'll use, you know, people use as ammunition, they'll use, why are they worried about these issues? They should be worried about Chicago, as if every black person is from Chicago. But it's not genuine, right? Because there's actual data, there's studies that show what we can do about these murder rates, right? So, you know, for me, I'm just looking at those things. And it's really a matter of others educating myself on what can be done. So those are some of the things, early childhood education. Now I'm going to give you the real answer. Early childhood education, without a doubt, investing in community organizations, definitely anything pertaining to financial literacy, to job training, job retraining, all these things. But I can tell you what the answer is not. And the answer is not overly incarcerating these young men and women. I can tell you for definitively, that I know is not the answer, right? Because it only creates a cycle of recidivism where they're incarcerated and they have no skills, they have no job training, they have no financial literacy, they struggle with general literacy, and they're not involved with any community organizations causing them to reoffend when they come back out and cannot find a job or don't have an address, such as us, then they can't get an apartment and things like that. So those are the big things that I'm personally looking at and that have shown to be incredibly efficacious to combat these issues. But it starts with education. And if it's difficult for someone to sit down with their mom or their dad to watch the 13th documentary, we are in a tough position. I, you know, Sarah and I talked to Alvin Irby, who is, I knew you were going to say that, I just beat you to it, yesterday, who is the CEO and chief reading officer at Barbershop Books, which is Mm -hmm. a program designed to target literacy for Black boys, in particular ages four through eight, who may not have ever had a Black man reading in their lives. And they set up, you know, these sort of reading shelves at 
barbershops and they're sort of pivoting now in the COVID-19 world as to how you do this without a physical barbershop in place and not using communal books, but to get kids reading and to show kids the importance of literacy and to make reading fun for kids. And to your, your example about, you know, here's a hundred dollar bill, like go fix my car. He was saying in response to things like that, that, you know, a lot of times we just were trying to go into places and like into the inner city and be like, here, let's fix things. But we never ask what people actually need and what is the true need in the community and what do these kids actually need and ask the kids and ask the families, what do you need? So I think that your example is a great way of highlighting, you know, how we've just a lot of times we throw money at things or we, you know, have this one and done sort of push to, you know, get people into inner cities without knowing what exactly they're doing. And so we can't actually fix anything along the way. I agree a thousand percent. I'm really glad that you point that out because as you said, they'll throw money at these issues, not fully understanding them. They're all deeply connected to even other issues. Like I just, something came to mind. If you go to the most rural town in West Virginia, for instance, right? And if you go to the most inner city part, you know, whatever that means, uh, Philadelphia or Oakland, people will have, they'll say generally the same thing. You know, hopefully I'm, I hope to be able to afford health care. I hope to be able to find a good job, you know, so good jobs, health care, things like that. Right. So these things, I, I must remind us that they're all connected because if the parents don't have them enough money to health care and they go into incredible debt just because of a healthcare emergency, or if they don't have a good job, you know, with good benefits or anything like that, then you're putting together, you're stringing together two or three jobs. Then you can't even collaborate with the educational and the community institutions to uplift that young man that's having trouble because he's neglected or the young girl because you're working so much. So these things are all connected. And what excites me, I guess, in the line of work that I do, you know, becoming a college professor is I get to see the people that are trying to take to deconstruct or take, you know, really focus on their little corner of this entire pie. And it's super exciting because, you know, I think sometimes if you're just watching the constant news cycle, whew, you will be discouraged. You would think we're on the verge of some sort of civil war, the way that you would see on the news channel, for instance. But what excites me is to see those people such as yourself that are focusing on your little corner. There's a thing that we will talk about, like in sports and football, and um, they will always say, do your one eleventh, because there's 11 people out there. And in order for the play to work, you have to do your one eleventh of the play in order for the play to function. And it excites me that people such as yourself and such as myself are focusing on our one eleventh, our little corner of whatever the issue is, being an expert in that, having cross collaborative talks, you know, about these things. I'm just excited. I'm actually, contrary to what you may see, I'm actually pretty excited and hopeful after seeing the outpouring of support after these protests and things that are going on. It actually makes me a little bit more hopeful because there are people that are even more motivated, such as yourself, to expose people to what's going on, to expose people to the changes that need to be made in these conversations of what can we actually do. So I'm hyped. Yeah. I mean, to that point, if you have a white mother, say, who goes, I want to help make things better for all these kids. Understanding, I mean, that all of these are hugely intersected, but what's the one thing that you would say that you want a white mother or a white family or an upper class family to do first? The very first thing I would say, educate yourself. And when I say educate yourself, that's no trivial task. When I say educate yourself, I see it as a revolutionary task. 
because you're saying, hold up, I'm being humble to the fact that I may not know everything about a particular topic or about these issues. And I'm making that humble step to acknowledge that I need to actually learn about these things before I say the real problem, they just need more fathers at home. Or the real problem, if they would just do this and stop worrying about this, you've gotten to a point where now you can be in a position to help once you've discarded those short, you know, little pithy statements of what you need to do, the sound bites, and you start to get towards the sound analysis of what can actually be done. So I said the very first step is to make that reading list. Definitely put a dream too big, my book on the reading list, but I recommend uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I recommend Stamped from the Beginning by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. If you are interested, I represent, I recommend, what is it called? It was by Robin D'Angelo. What's the name of that book? <laughs> White Fragility. Thank you. I recommend the book by uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, The New Jim Crow. We are reading that for our very first ever ah. Dear White Women book club. I yeah. love it. Okay, see, this excites me. And then I say sit down and watch the 13th documentary because it starts with education. There's one thing, I heard it from an author, Brian Stevenson. He works with the Equal Justice Initiative and he talked about this. It was super deep. I think it was some conversation about something. And he said that one of the biggest things that America is struggling with is truth and reconciliation. He said the reconciliation part, he said we're very far off from that because we're struggling with the truth part. See, the truth part, the reconciliation part, that's easy, right? But the truth part is the difficult part. He said he was talking about Germany, and he said that's a case study in truth and reconciliation, saying, hold up, this symbol recognizes this, uh, represents this. We will not use this symbol, you know, for instance, or this happened to this particular group, and there's no ifs, ands, buts, or about it. It was wrong, period, point blank. So now let's educate everyone. When you come to Germany— you're encouraged to go visit the Holocaust Museum. Your tour guide will encourage you to go see these things. And you know why? Because they're trying to say never again will anything like this happen. We want to educate everyone about how we're changing and the change we're making in society. And that's not to use Germany as like a, a shining example or a paradigm of anything, but just to use as a paragon of virtue in a general sense, but a paragon of truth and reconciliation. And that's the part we're struggling with in the United States on very simple things, basic things, you literally will have two camps of thought that truly think they're correct about something that they know nothing about. So that educational part is revolutionary. Once people start reading and really like diving into the literature and seeing for themselves, you will know what to do. The reason why I say that is, let's say you're a physician, right? That's one thing I learned about being a Rhodes Scholar. You have 32 American Rhodes Scholars that are all approaching like changing the world in a positive way, but from different disciplines, right? So when I went to the interview, it was a Jewish woman who became a very good friend of mine named Nicole Mileson, and she's a neuro-oncologist, so she does brain cancer. And it's deep. It's like some deep, super heavy stuff that she's doing. But that's her little corner, right? So when you educate her about everything that's going on, and you know she's up to date on the recent literature about what needs to change in society, then she texts her little corner as a neuro-oncologist and says, what can I do in this particular thing? So she'll know what to do. Once he gets that basis of information, you know, if you're already a nurse, you'll know what to do after reading this information. If you're already a teacher, you will know. I won't even have to tell you what to do. You know, I'm just telling you to educate yourself first. And, you know, like I said, that's a good reading list. My book is a great starting point, perhaps to ease you into it or to understand like the day to day experiences. But, yeah, educating yourself first, you'll know what to do. You'll have a great idea. I'm telling you. 
I love that. Thank you. I mean, I think for the way that we talk about so much of it is, is can we please humanize these conversations? And so one of the things that this conversation and your book does is bring a human being to the table to discuss what life is like it for real in this country. And so they can't discount it. You are the expert in your life and you are able to share that. And I really, really appreciate that you took the time to chat with us here and share all of this. Yes. It was really fantastic. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for having me. This was extremely fun. Wow. This is the highlight of my week and the highlight of my day. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist identity affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 